Well, like we always say on Sunday, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles. Turn to Genesis chapter 41, if you will. Let's begin reading, actually, in Genesis chapter 40, verse 20. And it came to pass on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all of his servants and lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief bakers among his servants. Then he restored the chief butler again, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. As Joseph is now sitting in jail, prison, the Bible calls it a dungeon, the house of the captain of the guard, he undoubtedly is remembering and pondering the fact that just years earlier, he was at home with his father, his mother, his brothers, and unbeknownst to him, one day his life completely changed due to a dream that he had. And then that dream was repeated. And ever since, those dreams were given to Joseph. And he announced to his family that he had had those dreams. Everything seems to have gone downhill since then. At first, his brothers became angry at him. And tried to get rid of him by throwing him in a pit to leave him to die. Then, having a degree of compassion, decided, well, why don't we make a few bucks off of our brother? And sold him into slavery to the Ishmaelites who then brought him down to Egypt. There in Egypt, he then became a slave in in the house of the captain of the guard. And he faithfully served Potiphar day in and day out. And the Lord blessed him and the house of Potiphar. They became prosperous. They became wealthy. They became blessed of God because Joseph was there with them. But as things were heading in the direction that they were, it went downhill again. Where Potiphar's wife made a pass at him aggressively, I think is safe to say. As the Bible uses such scandalous language, she cast longing eyes upon him. Isn't the Bible so eloquent? You know, we cheapen everything in our society. Falsely accused, he then now finds himself in prison where he has an appointment with a, the chief butler, the cupbearer to the king and the baker, who found themselves in trouble with Pharaoh and found themselves in prison. And while in prison, they both have dreams which Joseph is capable of interpreting for them because of God. One was going to be again restored to his position of prominence, that is the cupbearer to Pharaoh. But the other, the baker, well, his fate wasn't nearly as, uh, as exciting for he was going to be executed. When the cupbearer was restored to Pharaoh, 
Joseph said, will you please remember me and bring it to the Pharaoh's attention that I'm here. But as we just read, the cupbearer forgot Joseph. And in verse 1 of chapter 41, we now learn that two more years have passed. However Joseph's life began, the favorite of Jacob, the inheritance of his family's wealth, the birthright, being chosen by God for an extraordinary position. Since that, everything appears to have gone downhill. But this reminds us of a truth in the Christian faith that I want to once again remind you all of. And that's this. When God saved you, and I don't care who you are today, I don't care when you got saved, but when you got saved, if it be as a child, in, as a teenager, midlife, maybe older, uh, later on in life, you received Christ. God saved you with a purpose in mind. Now please hear that. God saved you with a purpose in mind. He has a whole plan that He architected before the foundations of the world for your life. And as you walk with Him, He begins to unfold that plan before you. And whatever role He'll have you to play in the church, and I'm not talking about just this church, I'm talking about Christ's church. Before placing you in that position, He always prepares you for that position. Now, I really want you to hear me this morning because I think we have forgotten this. I think many American Christians have reduced the Christian faith to a faith that simply serves them in obtaining their wants in life. But the Bible tells us something completely different. When I got saved, one of the most exciting things to consider was the fact that God had a plan for my life. God had a purpose for saving me. I didn't know what that purpose was. If you would have told me at that time, I would have said, you know, (laughs) pastoring, really? Me? Uh, mm, I'm not sure about that. I'm sure you've got the wrong guy. But when you realize that God has saved you for a purpose, that there's more to this life than just trying to obtain those things that you believe will make you happy, that once you become a child of God and dad is accessible to you day or night, once you realize that God saved you not just to simply save you out of the world, which is extraordinary in and of itself, To pass you from darkness to light, from death to life. Extraordinary. But as one theologian once said, it's not just that God adopts us, I should say redeems us, but He also adopts us. And as part of that adoption, He has a role for each and every one of us to play. God doesn't save people simply for them to ride the bench. Or to sit in the stands. 
He saves people with a purpose. Now, what that purpose is, I don't know. I didn't know what the purpose was for myself, but I can guarantee you this, that before you will fulfill that purpose, God will need to prepare you for that purpose. And the reason I say this this morning is because that's what we see happening in Joseph's life before us. God is preparing him for what he has for him. Otherwise, Joseph would fail miserably if God would not prepare him in this way. But the times of preparation are often very difficult. Only God knows how much pressure needs to be applied to conform us into the image of who He wants us to be. Only God knows what we need to experience and go through before He may fulfill the plan and purpose that He has for us. My journey to become a pastor started way before any education. When I first started serving at the church where I got saved, I was given an extraordinarily important ministry. I mean, the entire church service was dependent on what I did. My job was to place the plastic plants around the podium. That's my only job. That's what I had to do. Service could not proceed if the plastic plant I still have them today. The plastic plants were not in the right position. And I wish I could tell you that I executed that per- uh, that ministry f- perfectly. But my pastor unfortunately, well, I'll just say it, he- he's a little bit vertically challenged, okay? And I put the trees too close to the podium one Sunday, and he looked like a guy peeking through a bush, you know, trying to talk to the congregation. I personally told him he never looked better. But God was preparing me. Then I became a Sunday school teacher, and God was preparing me. Then I led the youth group. God was preparing me. Then after I got married, I again was given another ministry, but this time I was certain that the angels got the wrong letter and delivered it to me when I was asked, my wife and I were asked to oversee the nursery. I was the most child-impaired person that you ever want to meet. I had no idea what I was doing. I had no clue. We were required to wear ties at that time, so I had an assortment of clip-ons. And when we served in that ministry, here I was trying to run it like a corporation, but the kids had their own ideas of what they wanted to do. And the only good that tie ever did was give them something to swing on. But unfortunately, it was a clip-on. And I remember just grumbling. I, I, I remember, <laughs> oh, I was serving so faithfully. I was like, Lord, you got the wrong guy. And every Sunday I was like, well, it's time to do the nursery. It's like the guy, it's time to make the donuts. It's time to do the nursery. And finally, 
the frustration was growing. My, of course, my wife was a master at it. She was wonderful with the kids. They all loved her, and they would walk right by me and just give me those looks, you know, as they did. And after one Sunday, after the last child was checked out, I was like, you know what, that's it. I'm going to schedule an appointment with my pastor, and I have to step down. This is just not working out for me. And so as I was cleaning the toys, the Lord just spoke to me. He said, would you knock it off? I don't know, does God talk to you like that? How is it possible for me to do anything more in and through you? If you can't take care of the most uh, precious um, uh, people in the lives of the church congregation, how are you going to take care of my people? And I felt so rebuked, rightfully so. If I wasn't going to faithfully minister to the children, how could I ever faithfully minister to the adults? And I realized what God was doing. He was breaking me. He was preparing me. And do you know what was interesting? Is that three months later, this church began. That's where God needed to bring me. He needed to break me of me. He needed to show me the value of people. He needed to show me how important you are to Him. And that every individual matters, period, to God. But Joseph is now going through his time of preparation. Maybe you're going through your time of preparation. And there's a lot we can learn from this chapter together. Now, just because I serve as your pastor doesn't mean that I'm finished and the work is complete within me. God continues to work in you, even after you assume that role in which God has prepared you for. But let us notice together with Joseph, and the very first thing that we need to notice together is God's timing. Number one, God's timing. One of the certainties that I've come to is that my timing is not God's timing. And it certainly wasn't Joseph's either. As one wrote, he said, God's ways are past finding out, but God's time to act is never too early or never too late. And throughout all the book of Genesis, chapter 41 demonstrates the sovereignty of God. When pain enters our life, when properly handled by our Lord, can shape a life for greatness. As A.W. Tozer once wrote this famous quote, he says, It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he first hurts him deeply. So we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 41. And it came to pass at the end of two, notice the wording, full years, that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he stood by a river. Notice how it is written. Two full years. Two years of just sitting and waiting in that prison, knowing that the cupbearer had forgotten him. He could have concluded that God, too, had forgotten him. But that was Far from true. For two years, Joseph waited. 
As Chuck Swindoll wrote, he said, For those two full years for Joseph were neither exciting nor eventful. They represented a long, dull, monotonous, unspectacular, slow-moving grind, month after month after month of, well, nothing. It is in these times of delay that we often begin to believe that God is silent, and He may be. But in that silence, we must not therefore conclude that God is not working in us and has forgotten about us. Now, it would have been easy for Joseph to do that. In those two monotonous, day-by-day, hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute years that he spent there with nothing to encourage him except holding on to those two dreams that he had so much earlier in his life. It's imperative that you and I understand and to know that when we are going through difficult times, it will always appear that time is going by slowly. It reminds me of Job. If you've never read the book of Job, may I encourage you to do so. Some people are somewhat uh, 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 superstitious when it comes to the book of Job. Well, if I start reading the book of Job, then everything that happened to Job is going to happen to me. You know, it's almost similar to why many Americans don't have a will. It's because they're convinced that the moment they draft a will that they're going to die. But in Job chapter 23, turn with me there in your Bibles. I think you need to see this. Job chapter 23. After Job again was accused of being a wicked man, for he had to be because of all that he was suffering. This was God punishing Job. But Job knew in his heart that he had done nothing wrong, and yet still found him in himself in this position of suffering. Great suffering. And today you may feel That you are in this period of time where God is silent. You don't know what's happening next. Maybe you're going through a period of suffering. And it would be easy to conclude that God has forgotten you. That God has abandoned you. And that God is no longer working. But let me tell you this, and please hear me. God is always working. Even when we don't see it, God is always working. Notice with me in Job, if you will. I find Job to be an incredibly fascinating book for many, many different reasons. But in Job chapter 23, there is an incredible exchange. Job speaking. And notice what he says here, starting in verse 1. We'll read through the first 12 verses. Then Job answered and said to the individual that was accusing him of being wicked. Job says, even today my complaint is bitter. There is bitterness. There's difficulty. I feel the weight of the hand of God upon me. And it appears at times to be more than I can bear. And this is Job wrestling within himself, looking at things from his perspective. 
trying to make sense of it, trying to you know, connect the dots, if you will. He's trying to understand why this is happening, what's going on. And he said, oh, if I could only have an appointment with God, if I could only come before God and explain to Him and share with Him, He would obviously see that I have done nothing wrong. He's saying this to the person accusing him. But he isn't denying that what he is going through is difficult. It's very difficult, he says. In verse 3, Oh, that I had knew where I might find him, that is God. Oh, that I may know where he is. That I may come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments, meaning I would tell him what's going on. I would would share with him that I've done nothing wrong. Because he was confident of that. I know that his words which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. I know how he would respond. Would he contend with me in his great power? No. But he would take note of me. There the upright could reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judgment. Look, I go forward, but he is not there. I go backwards, but I cannot perceive him. I can't find God. When he works on, my le- on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he tests me, I shall become forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from his commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Oh, if God would only grant me an audience. I could petition him. I could share my case before him. And he would respond to me with grace. He would respond to me with understanding, compassion. And he would deliver me from these sufferings. But yet I still know, and he's talking to himself, but yet I still know that God is refining me as gold is being refined. He's purifying me. He's working in me. He's preparing me. Job had a very minimalistic understanding of God, and yet he was still faithful to that limited knowledge in which he had. Yet we have so much more, don't we? Job could have just said, Oh Lord, this is unfair. How dare you? This is wrong, Lord. I've done nothing to deserve this. But yet Job understood from his position That God must be doing something in him, refining him, preparing him, showing him who he truly is. When we, like Joseph, find ourselves in those two full years, let us remember, like Job remembered, that God hasn't forgotten us. God is still working. And God will bring about gold within us. Let's go back to our text in chapter 41 and continue reading. In Genesis chapter 41, notice this. 
Then it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. Uh Uh-oh, things are changing. God is now going to do something that only God can get credit for. Why the two years? I don't know. Why wasn't it six months? Why wasn't it a year and a half? I don't know. This is where my timetable and God's timetable never seem to, to uh, line up. You know, once I realized that God was calling me to become a pastor, I said, I'm good to go, God. I know everything I need to know. And it's just like, I could just hear God laughing. It's like, you don't know nothing, pal. Does God talk to you like that? Please tell me he does, because I'm getting a little concerned here. Why two years? I don't know. But after two years, now God starts to bring things together. Pharaoh has a dream. And that dream will be the catalyst of bringing Joseph to the forefront. And Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he stood by the river. Suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven others came up after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt, they were sickly, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river, that is the Nile River, by the way. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking and fat cows, so Pharaoh awoke. No, not that Pharaoh became woke, he awoke. Okay? Now, I I don't know about you, but do you ever, I want to ask, God, why did you select the dreams that you selected? You know, what's what's this with cows? The skinny ones eat the fat ones. What's going on here? And it troubled him, so he awoke up in the middle of the night. In verse 5, then he slept and dreamed a second time. And suddenly seven heads of grain came up on one stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven thin heads, blight by the east winds, sprang up after them. And the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke, and indeed it was a dream. Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. The word magician there is misleading. It's accurate to a degree, but it's incomplete. In that culture, in ancient times, magicians such as these, also known as sorcerers, there were also astrologers, they were also uh, men of science of that day. These were the intellectuals, the experts at that time. We see the same thing in Babylon with King Nebuchadnezzar. And of course, this is what propelled Daniel into prominency there in the the Babylonian Empire. These were the most intellectual experts at that time. But their expertise was limited. Their knowledge was limited. 
their understanding of the world was limited. Because only with knowing God can you have true understanding of the world around us. Only through the lens of Scripture can you see things as they really are. Which, of course, they did not have. Later we'll see that it's these same magicians, years later, these intellects, the philosophers of the time. Now, one of the reasons that the word magician or sorcerer is used in conjunction with these individuals is because they were willing to accept a supernatural world. That supernatural world was occupied by the pagan gods. And they believed that there was wisdom and insight to be had through the pagan gods. Unlike our intellects and experts today want to deny the supernatural world altogether. They want to absolutely remind us that the supernatural world does not exist and therefore they don't have to deal with it. This is truly the cornerstone of the neo-atheism that we see moving through our world today. A lack of acknowledgement of the supernatural world. So they were limited in what they could do. Let us understand that intellect and expertise is incredibly valuable. But let us also understand that intellects and experts can be corrupted just like anybody else. Let us understand that they can give forth wisdom and advice to serve themselves or their agenda or their purpose. They too can be corrupted by the allurement of money, personal gain, power and prestige. It's not like they are, you know, exempt from those things, those temptations. We must be very careful. We must be. We need their expertise. We need their insight. But let us also know that we need to be discerning. Okay? The Bible calls these people the individuals well-versed in the sacred writings. They were intellects, they were knowledgeable, etc., but they could not answer Pharaoh's question. I think of Paul when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.20. He said, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? How true is that? But this, of course, opens the door for Joseph. Verse 9, Then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh, saying, Remember my faults. I remember my faults this day. Oh, man, I dropped the ball. I forgot. And when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker, who didn't make it. No, I'm just kidding. We each had a dream in one night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretations of his own dream, meaning they were exclusively applied to each individual. Now there was a young Hebrew man with us there, a servant of the captain of the guard, and we told him, and he interpreted dreams for us, our dreams for us. To each man he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came to pass, just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me to my office, and he hanged him. Well, then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, 
And they brought him quickly out of the dungeon. And he shaved and changed his clothing and came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. But I have, uh, but I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. So Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It's not me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. It's not me, Pharaoh. It's the God in whom I serve. After all that Joseph had been through, he still refuses to take any glory for himself and once again puts God first and foremost. It's the Lord. It is God who will interpret. Now, a very interesting thing here. He says, God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. The word peace there, it's directly correlated with the trouble that Pharaoh was feeling. He was uneasy by his dreams. His dreams were unsettling to him. He was concerned. They were on his mind. But the word peace here, of course, is shalom. A peace that is often used in greeting of one another. In saying shalom to someone, peace with you, to be with you. The peace of God. And it is interesting to me that in the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream, and Joseph using this language, he will answer Pharaoh with an answer of peace, he is saying to Pharaoh, this is your appointment with God. In interpreting this dream, know that it is God who is giving the interpretation, and this is your appointment with God, and God is saying to you, Shalom. Coming to Pharaoh in peace, showing Pharaoh God in this way, the reality of him, the nature of him. Now we know later, when Pharaoh refused God, that then God, of course, brought the plagues against the nation of Egypt. But it was only after the refusal of Pharaoh, a completely different Pharaoh than this one. But still, it's interesting to me that God comes to us and says, Shalom, peace. I often remember this when I share my faith with those who do not know the Lord. They're troubled, they're going through very difficult things in life. And it'd be easy to begin the conversation by blasting them with, uh, concerning every fault that they, have ever, uh, that they have or have ever committed. And yet when it comes to God in the Old Testament, when it comes to Jesus in the New Testament, He begins the conversation with peace. Maybe these individuals who are so troubled by their, by their sin, by the world, simply need to know that there's a God who loves and cares for them. That if they will come to God in repentance, God will begin to heal them. He'll have a relationship with them. 
He'll uh, loves them too much to leave them the way he found them. He'll begin to prepare them for the plan and purposes that he has for them. It's extraordinary how God can work in a person's life. And I also realize that no one is ever too far gone. They're never outside the reach of God. They're never outside the hearing of God. God knows them, loves them, cares for them, and says to them, Shalom. Look at that the next time you read the Gospels. As we continue together in verse 17. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I stood at the bank of the river, and suddenly seven cows came up out of the river, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. And behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such ugliness as I have never seen in all of the land of Egypt. And the gaunt and ugly cows ate up the first seven, and the fat Uh, the first seven, the fat cows, and when they had eaten them up, no one would have known that they had eaten them. For they were just as ugly as at the beginning. So I awoke. I also saw in in my dream, and suddenly seven heads came up on one stalk, full and good. Then behold, the seven heads withered uh, thin and blighted by the east wind sprang up after them. And the thin heads devoured the seven good heads. So I told this to the magicians. But there was no one who could explain it to me. And then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the, dream, the dreams, excuse me, plural of Pharaoh are one, meaning they mean the same thing. God has shown Pharaoh what he, notice that, is about to do. The seven good cows are seven uh, years, and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one. And the seven thin and ugly cows which came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come through all of the land. But after them, seven years of famine will arise, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will deplete the land. So the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following. It will be very severe. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the things is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. Let me say it again is what Joseph is saying. God gave you two dreams, Pharaoh, to confirm that what he is about to do is certainly going to happen. Egypt had enjoyed an incredible time of prosperity. And God was going to continue that prosperity for another seven years. But then after that, a famine would just blight the entire region. Of course, to the point that it would cause Joseph's brothers and family to, of course, head to Egypt looking for food. 
God using a natural disaster to bring about His purposes. Just as God used a census to bring Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem in the New Testament. God using natural things to accomplish supernatural works. Fascinating parallel. But notice that Joseph made a point to say that he gave it to you twice to establish it. He wants you to know that it is certain and it will come to pass. In the New Testament, the writers often say to us, I'm saying this to you again to remind you, to stir it up in your memory. And often they repeat things. Why? Because sometimes we're a little hard-headed that we like to admit, don't we? Sometimes we need to hear it multiple times. If you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's amazing how you can repeat the same thing over and over again. You just want to record it and put it on a loop and put it in their bedroom at night so it just, by osmosis, they hopefully finally get it. But we too need to hear things over and over and over again. And I have to be honest with you, I get troubled when I see people come to church, they find what what we're going to be discussing and teaching, and they said, oh, I've heard that already. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, maybe there's another show on another channel you'd like better. No, I can't say that. I went to pastor school, but I didn't skip that class, I think, because sometimes that's what I want to say to them. You need to hear it again. We all need to hear it again. Peter said in 2 Peter 1.12, which we're studying on Wednesday nights, he says, for this reasons, I will not be neglected to remind you always of these things. Though you know and are established in the present truth, I'm going to keep hammering it home, Peter says. But then he also goes on to say later in that same chapter concerning the prophetic word of God. God introduced himself to Pharaoh through Shalom. Now God is going to demonstrate that he is the God of the universe by keeping the prophetic promise in which he made to Pharaoh. When Peter was establishing uh, in the minds of his readers the validity and the truth of the gospel, of course, he says very clearly, we saw these things for ourselves. We heard the words of Jesus. That should be ample evidence that what we say to you is true. But he doesn't stop there. He could have, but doesn't. He goes on to say that we have one more assurance that demonstrates that Jesus Christ is exactly who he said he was, and that is the fact that Jesus fulfilled the 300-some prophecies concerning his first coming. As he writes, he says this in 2 Peter 1, 19-21, And so you have the prophetic word confirmed, which you, will, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Christ's fulfillment of these prophecies should assure you that He was exactly who He said He was. Jesus fulfilled all 300 prophecies concerning his first coming perfectly. There are over 600 prophecies concerning his second. I will venture to say that every one of those 600 will be fulfilled. And I believe we're seeing them being fulfilled in our time before us today. The Lord is set to return. 
because the word of God says so. In verse 33, Joseph concludes with wisdom. Notice what he says. Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man. Set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of plentiful. And let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. Then the food shall be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. Now, it's interesting. Now, think about this for a minute, okay? Two years he's been sitting in prison. All of a sudden, now he finds himself in front of Pharaoh. How quickly can God change our circumstances? Can you say like that? So he interprets the two dreams. He does what he is asked to do. And then he goes on to give Pharaoh advice. Oh, by the way, Pharaoh, since I'm here. But notice what he actually says to him. Never, of course, petitioning for himself to be that person. But notice what Joseph is saying. To spare yourself from death... Take of the seven years of plenty, one-fifth, harvest them, collect them, and put them in a reserve to feed yourself through the seven years of famine. In essence, this is how you save yourself. This is how you spare yourself. But notice with me this short summation of the gospel within Genesis 41. God comes to him and says, Shalom. God proves Himself by saying that the Word of God will be fulfilled because He is God. And then lastly, if you listen to the wisdom of God, you shall save yourself from death. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting how that plays out? Let us understand that when we talk to someone who doesn't know Jesus Christ, they are an individual that is hurting that is lost and who is dying. And we have the answer. The answer is Jesus. And he took this opportunity to give Pharaoh incredible advice on how he may be spared from the effects or the consequences of the famine that is coming. Historians tell us that Egypt was so prosperous for so long that they'd had very little in reserves or in savings. They just never thought it was necessary. But now Joseph is saying it's very necessary because when the famine does come, it's going to be severe and lives will be lost due to it. And this is how you can set yourself up to be saved from death. I don't know what you're going through this morning, but I'd like to encourage you, if I may. Paul said it this way. It's become an incredibly important verse to me. To remind me that if you are in those two years period, two of full years, I think that's going to be a new saying around here. How are you doing? 
I'm in two full years. Here's my encouragement to you. For our light afflictions, which are but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the, one, but the things which are not seen are eternal. When we are going through these times, Peter says to those experiencing these things in 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7, he says, Therefore humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. I like the way Peter says that, due time, meaning it's totally up to God. I have no clue, but in due time. But in the process, in that period of time, and while you wait, here is the instruction for you. Casting all your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. So I say this to you this morning. God is working, even when we don't see it. And while we are waiting, waiting, and waiting some more, God is still at work in our lives.